Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning. You are listening to Green Left Radio, and on the line we have myself, Jacob, and Zane. Um, Hello. We have a pretty unpacked um, program today on a very hot morning. Um, in fact, it's apparently supposed to be over 41 degrees today, um, so probably best to stay inside. And if you don't have access to air conditioning, maybe head down to your local library. Mm. Yeah, and... Um, um, so, uh, just before um, we announce what's um, start um, the program, I'd like to acknowledge that um, today, FreeCR is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect to Elders past and present, and that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Now, guess um, we have a number of interviews um, kind of planned. Um, for today, we've got two at least. Um, we're going to be speaking to um, Janka Bionwala, um, Willa, um, who is a Sri Lankan um, sociologist who works currently as a TAFE teacher in um, New South Wales, and we're going to be having a bit of a discussion with him about the, the issues around sports and corruption, so using the kind of recent sort of sports gate kind of developments, um, where uh, a minister, I think it was Bridget McKenzie, I think, um, was implicated in a sort of scandal around giving, um, you know, funding to a particular sports club unlawfully. Many sports clubs. Well, many sports clubs. And the second interview, which will be at the end of the program, will be with Khalid, um, Khalid, um, who is a long-time social, uh, social science member and a long-time Palestinian activist to talk about some of the recent developments in Palestine. Now, I guess the first thing I, I want to sort of bring, um, talk about, we might, we might actually spend a bit more time talking about this later in the program, is the kind of big scare around um, the coronavirus. Um, and I think there's kind of a lot to be said, I think, um, about the Australian government's response to it. Um, and that is, it is completely unconscionable that they literally are transporting people to, for the purposes of quarantining people. Mm. They are putting them on Christmas Island, an offshore detention camp. Um, and actually even gets, in, in some ways this gets a bit comedic, but basically, apparently, um, they're, for Australians who are strapped on, on Wuhan in China, um, they are expected to pay, um, I think around a thousand dollars to get, to get transported out of Australia. Into a concentration Into camp. a concentration camp. And then, when they've been declared safe or not um, not contagious, they get sent to Perth 
and then they have to pay their own way to get back home. Like, this is, yeah, this is, I mean, especially Perth, like, like, the tickets are massively expensive to, it's massively expensive to travel anywhere. You know what else is massively expensive? Running a concentration camp on Christmas Island. And you know what would be a lot cheaper than that? Having quarantine centres set up in Melbourne and Sydney and wherever else those people from Wuhan want to fly back to. Yeah, it's just, it's completely... These diseases aren't like magical AM radio waves that travel 30 kilometres through the air and could infect people. Hmm. It's a virus. You put people in a building, you put people inside so they can't sneeze on or have physical contact with other people, Hmm. and you're quarantined it. They don't need to be on Christmas Island. Hmm. And if this breakout had happened in Europe or the USA, I don't think that we would be seeing this. Hmm. It's because we're talking about brown people. We're talking about Asian people. And so suddenly, A, oh, it's much more scary. It's it's basically a flu. Like, it's probably the fatality rate is similar to the ordinary flu. Like, this thing is not this super deadly disease. I think it's like 2% of people. Yeah, okay, it's a new disease. They don't have a cure for it. Precautions need to be taken. But absolutely outrageous that they're sending people to Christmas Island. And that's just the the uh, the shit cherry on the cake, if you will, making people fork out tons of money for flights and then just dropping them off in Perth. There you go. Good luck getting back to the East Coast. Mm. It's kind of like just a, an, uh, an example of how um, capitalism responds to these crises. And in fact, I've actually read, I was reading an article um, by a medical scientist that is actually criti- quite critical by the way certain governments use these sort of quarantine practices because they're not, they don't necessarily seem to be based on the best science um, and that seem to be more based around kind of scaremongering and sort of paranoia and panic. Um, in fact, that's how I would sort of describe the reaction of how the Australian government has responded um, to the coronavirus. And there's also another issue of, um, of the fact that um, basically, oh yeah, well, one kind of interesting thing is this actually reminds me a lot of um, the novel by Jose, uh, the Portuguese author Josie Saramango, um, Blindness, which in in that um, particular novel, um, people are infected with a contagious um, disease that makes everyone blind, and basically the, the the state's response is to basically put everyone in into some kind of de- into a, a, de- a detention camp where they essentially take away all their rights as as people um, on the basis of quarantining them from the rest of the world. <laughs> mm. And it's and it's kind of interesting in in this context. It just show um, because that um, that particular novel was meant to be a bit of a critique of the state and mm. its sort of inherent sort of oppressive nature and how the state generally doesn't necessarily look to serve the um, the best interests of ordinary people. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I guess liberal governments just never miss an opportunity to distract from their own corruption and ineptitude by whipping up some racism and once again the 
politics of the gutter, uh, just disgusting xenophobic politics from the Liberals. Uh, Alright, I think I'll play an announcement and then I think we'll get our first uh, person on the line to talk about things a bit more. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Three CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out, to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Right, you're listening to Green Left um, um, Radio, um, and on the line we have um, Janka um, Bian Wheeler, um, who is a sociologist and the author of um, of a book called Sports in the Global South: Work, Play, and Resistance in Sri Lanka, and is also a TAFE teacher in um, New South Wales. Um, so yeah, good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I'm not a TAFE teacher, I'm a, a policy officer. Oh, policy officer. I thought because yeah. you worked at a, a, NUSA, a, a TAFE um, that you were, I more likely made the assumption you were a teacher. I, well, sorry for that. Um, I guess the first um, kind of question I guess want to um, kind of ask is, I guess... What, I, I guess I want to kind of hear from, I guess with your kind of expertise, what is sort of your comments on some of these recent kind of developments around Sportsgate, um, especially in the light of the around the corruption kind of issues of the New South Wales government and its sort of links to, to sports? Um, I think in my book I was trying to take a, a kind of a big picture view of what's happened to sports under neoliberalism and the spread of markets. And what I argue is that sports has increasingly shifted from the realm of social reproduction or the realm of households and communities into the realm of markets. So this is where sport is commodified and is used to make profit. Now, this sports case happens in a context, broader context of that, where the state is actually divvying out a little bit of money to local sports to sustain them. Now, that little bit of money they're divvying out um, is that the corruption part comes in that is the criteria and who gets involved, who makes, who decides. 
And generally there is a process that is, you know, a bureaucratic process that goes through the evaluation of each of the grants that have been applied. But as you, you know, as we all know, there's ministerial interference to figure, to decide actually where these money goes, which is marginal seats and essentially pork barreling, uh, public funds for, you know, re-election of a ruling party. Now, there's few areas we can look at that. One is the realm of sports media, which is highly dominated by just consumer culture and entertainment that doesn't report on these underlying issues that a lot of the sports clubs on the ground face, which is the lack of resources, lack of access to uh, uh, venues, a whole, a whole range of issues these local sports clubs are dealing with. So one is sports journalism and sports media. We need to interrogate that and say, look, you guys need to be a little bit more socially conscious about the, the, on, uh, the, on, on the ground reality of a lot of these clubs and why a lot of people are actually not participating in sport. Um, so sports media is one. The other part is the role of the state because the state actually should be giving block grants rather than getting these clubs to apply for grants continuously for every little thing they have to do. So what happens is these clubs can't plan for long-term uh, programs, and they the, the better clubs who can, you know, afford a grant uh, grant writer can get uh, a better grant put up uh, in the process. So the less disadvantaged clubs lose out in this process too. So that's the realm of the state. So I think we need to think, okay, how do we change the state? We need to start going, re, you know, reinventing the block grant system where these sports clubs are given long-term funding, sustainable funding. Uh, with proper monitoring and evaluation. Yeah. So um, within these sort of um, granting of kind of sports grants, there's sort of like a, a certain bit of sort of nepotism in it. Would um, would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. But the other nepotism comes through the sports markets in the sense, say, uh, FIFA and then the local Australian Football Federation and how this federation decides how all their money gets divided up among the local uh, clubs. So the big revenue sports, I'm talking about cricket, rugby, football, basketball, oh, not so much basketball and netball, but the big major sports, there's a whole lot of corruption and uh, exploitation happening within that sphere too. But I think we can hold the market, I mean, the state more accountable because these are public funds that are actually divvying up for their own political purposes. And um, how would you, I guess, in terms of, like, talking about these kind of, some of this stuff in a sort of global context, um, I guess in terms of a global context, um, what has um, this these sort of issues sort of meant in terms of, like, both the kind of global north countries and even especially the global south, um, especially the more famous kind of example um, being um, the case of, FIFA and um, the whole scandal surrounding the fact that Qatar is basically going to be hosting um, the next World Cup um, and all the kind of accusations of um, corruption um, and, and so on coming out of that. Yes, I think uh, all 
global sports institutions, which is the dominant one is the International Olympic Committee, and the second one is FIFA, and the third one is ICC cricket. All these three global institutions and their local counterparts are driven by what I call sports oligarchies. And these sports oligarchies oligarchies need to be exposed because they are not democratically accountable or they have manipulated the internal systems for them to maintain their dominance within the system. So that corruption goes from global to national to regional to local in terms of nurturing sports oligarchies that are essentially there for their own self-interest and self-benefit rather than a collective interest. So one thing is to democratize all these institutions, demand all forms of public participation in these institutions that decide uh, what's best for sports and the people. So I think the sports media has a big role to play because sports media is not reporting in a sustained way about how these institutions are um, undemocratic and unaccountable and not responsible for the people on the ground. Who they're responsible is uh, are the uh, capitalist class that is uh, benefiting from this system. Hmm. Um, Junk, I'm, I'm wondering if you are aware of uh, any examples in other parts of the world where they do have a system like what you've spoken of, where little local sports clubs get some sort of recurring funding so they're not stuck in this cycle of applying for grants. And um, Yes, I think this is where the way capitalism globally spreads and how it's locally embedded matters. So Australia has pretty much followed a kind of Anglo-Saxon capitalism that is akin to or driven by the U.S. capitalist model, which is limited regulation and managerial prerogative and privatization. Whereas in the in the EU, even though they're still capitalist, there's still on the ground some. Um, national regulation and an orientation to what's called the social market. They use, still use the term social market as opposed to in Australia and uh, America. They use the term just markets or neoliberal free markets. So the term social markets matters because that's where people feel that they have a voice in markets and they can embed these markets in the needs of local communities. So I would say Germany would be a good example to think about because even within their professional football league, they still have what's called the 50 plus one rule, which is that the local clubs have to be owned by at least uh, 49% by the, I'm sorry, 51% by the local community. Is that the, so, the Bundesliga? That's right. Wow. Oh, I never knew that. It's amazing. Yes. So this is the stuff that sports media should be discussing and creating a public conversation around to figure out how best we can serve the community. But sports media is just driven by this consumer culture and entertainment and, you know, results and, uh, you know, celebrity stories without 
any deep analysis of how we can start rethinking about uh, re-embedding sports markets in local communities. Mm. And another question that kind of flows, especially since we're talking about um, soccer and football, is how do these sort of dynamics sort of disproportionately impact on um, countries, say, in the global south? Um, especially the worst example um, is um, the English Premier League, um, which I am, you know, I follow and I am a fan of, but the English yeah. Premier League's role is actually overallly pretty negative um, because essentially um, the English Premier League essentially takes most of the best talent from most of the countries in the Global South with very high kind of transfer fees, um, etc. And, yeah, I'm interested in sort of hearing your perspective, I guess, about these sort of neoliberal kind of economic kind of dynamics um, yeah. in terms of the global markets and how they disproportionately impact on the Global South. Yeah. So... Um just like the English Premier League, the Qatar uh, Olympic uh, Games is also uh, centers of labor migration, sports labor migration. And um, in the sense, um, the way the consumer culture of sports works is that there are particular urban centers that create sports markets. And in order to make a living for some of these sports uh, laborers from the global south and they're good at their sport, they eventually migrate into these uh, urban centers in the global north. Now, there are particular corridors uh, related to specific sports. So, for, for instance, um, uh, in America, for baseball, there's a corridor from south to Latin America to into America that this labor migration happens. And if you think of football, there's South America, Africa, especially that has migration uh, corridors into Europe. So there's a pattern of particular kinds of sports labor migration that's happening. Myself included, I came from Sri Lanka, went to America to uh, to be a better springboard diver. Then I got an athletic scholarship to go to uni. Then I coached there for five years. Then I went back to Sri Lanka and went to the Olympics in 96. But all that happened because I was able to migrate out of Sri Lanka and get that extra, you know, skill that I could have, I could do in order to perform, you know? So the way in the way the sports markets are set up, it creates this labor corridors, and in this process also, they deplete local communities of local resources for sports, which forces these labor migrations to happen. So the English Premier League is not doing much for actually uh, nurturing local sports clubs. It just creates a fan base for its own profit-making. And we really need to get away from that kind of uh, uh, consumer culture of sports and to start really appreciating local sports and local clubs rather than these global spectacles that our people are drawn into. Zane, you had a question? Yeah, we'll probably wrap it up soon, but I was just wondering how this ties in with winning better funding for women's sports because Mm. I feel like women's sports uh, haven't been... um, 
uh, I guess, sucked into this vortex of, of super um, commercialised and marketised, is that yeah. potentially a platform by funding women's sports to try and, I don't know, rest things back and, and bring sports back into being this, as you say, a sort of more of a social reproduction thing rather than a source of money-making? Yes, I think that's a great... You, I think... Uh it up really nicely in that sense, yes, because sport is fundamentally grounded in patriarchy and racial capitalism. In the sense, sports markets coexist with nationalism and militarism, and both of these uh, concepts and ideas are fundamentally grounded in patriarchy. So the way in which sports markets works is that they spruik up nationalism, and behind this nationalism, militarism that is also spruiking. And this is a highly hyper-masculine kind of a sports culture that's emerged. So I think, yes, we really need to start rethinking uh, how to change this patriarchal sports cultures by encouraging an alternative form of sport. Now, yes, we need to push women's sport, but also have a different conversation because there's a kind of a market feminism where women see girl power and empowerment purely within a market framework. Rather than thinking in, in that kind of a framing, I think we need to start thinking, yes, women's sports within a non-capitalist or post-capitalist socialist framework. How, how, what would that look like? Well, that would look like an inclusive sports culture where people with disabilities, people with alternate sexualities are recognized and also allowed to participate and celebrated within sports. So making sports much more kind of a mixed environment where we kind of break it up the ways we have, you know, categorized sports into male and female and to able and disabled and to really rethinking a much more communal form of Sport where we kind of move away from this hyper competition to regain the sense of play and the notion of a, a festival in in sport. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So, I, I like the vision you paint there. Yeah. All right. So I think we'll um, wrap up this interview um, now. Do you kind of have any final comments um, you'd like to make? Look, I think. Uh, what you guys are doing is so important and, you know, the ways you guys try to get a message out is so important. So community radio also can get into community sport and start rethinking how community radio can be part of that new uh, reimagined sport culture rather than because mass media is not helping an alternative vision of sport. So keep up, keep doing what you guys are doing and uh, keep uh, encouraging an alternative vision of uh, sports pleasures. Good. All right. Um, thanks heaps for uh, talking to us this morning, Janka. Much appreciated. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. All right. See you next time. All right. Bye. Bye. Uh, yes, Janka Bianwiller there, who is a... Was it policy officer for um, TAFE? Yeah, and um, but also a, a sociologist, and he has written a number of um, two books on this on sort of subject. <coughs> yeah, oh, what a good talk! All right, we're going to play a couple of uh, announcements and then bring you some more news.
3CR are selling kofia Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Radio, welcome back. You are listening to Green Life Radio. You're on 3CR, and it's half past seven. Hi. Um, I think one news story I kind of wanted to talk about was um, what's sort of happening in um, just a bit of a... We're going to explore this in more detail for next week's program, where we'll be hopefully interviewing someone straight from the US about um, the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, but I would like to just sort of read from an article... Um, written here by um, Leo for the latest Green Left, um, who gives a bit of a summary around um, about the democratic kind of battle. Um, so basically, Leo starts off by saying, um, Democratic candidates Hillary Clinton's defeat by Republican Donald Trump in the 2016 um, United States presidential election may have prompted some international observes that uh, that any Democratic attempt to retake the carhouse would have to wait at least four years. However, in the US, one electoral's conclusions only um, singles the start of a new electoral season. Now, I guess one of the things that to give is that, you know, Trump's sort of election in 2016 was a shock to, you know, the global establishment and demo, um, domestic um, political um, commentators. Um, however, I think, you know, this sort of ignores the kind of real, as Leah writes here, the very real material conditions behind the emergence of figures like Trump. Right-wing democracy does not appear from a vacuum. Trump promising to drain the swamp was perceived as channeling the genuine anger of working-class people discontent with a neoliberal dystopia, beating them to a pulp towards his um, political movement. Many um, establishment media interpreted his cocktail of protectionist and staunchly nationalist American first policies alongside his electoral triumphs, triumphs in um, traditional Rust Belt regions of the country as proof that ordinary voters mistakenly saw a New York-based billionaire as the only option for change. And while 
Trump um, did um, channel some systematic resentment into his campaign. This aligned affords him too much credit. In fact, Trump's share of the vote was, you know, similar to, um, broadly similar to previous Republican candidates in the last decade. Um, rather, it is a historical unpopularity of both major party um, candidates that had the biggest role to play in the, this election. Many of the voters Democrats historically have relied upon, women, the youth and people of colour, failed to come out to, to vote for Clinton, allowing Trump to win key, key swing states, despite no significant change to the Republican vote compared to 12, um, 12, um, to, uh, 2012. Um, and of course, it... In this, if this analysis, I think one of the kind of things is Trump's supposed status as, a, uh, as an outsider. It quickly became clear that the U.S. ruling class ruled him as workable enough to mechanism for protecting his interests. Uh, he, he didn't drain the swamp. He just shat in it several times. Yeah, <laughs> left it he, completely Like for example, the mayor he pushed through on 1.5 trillion in, in tax cuts. Um, the president to bring our troop, um, troops home. Um, extended U.S. complicity in Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen and arbitrarily bombed um, Syria and Iran. Um, the candidate who guaranteed to safeguard Medicare and Social Security had attempted to roll back the Affordable um, Care Act. And, of course, you know, Democratic opposition to Trump's actions underlines the split now firmly cemented in the party and evident in 2020 primaries. And I guess since... One of the things about the Democrats is since um, Trump's election, um, the Democratic Party ship has f- focused entirely on none issues. Rather than provide any re- real substance to the criticisms, the Democratic um, Catholic establishment has scorned, um, scorned Trump for his orange skin, demanded to see his tax returns, carefully documented all his lies, fantically read nine, um, George Orwell's 1984, and most perversely of all, pushed a conspiracy about so-called Russia's involvement in um, Trump's election. Current impeachment impeachment proceedings were initiated only after Trump was suspected of asking Ukraine authorities to investigate a political rival and member of the establishment rather than for his myriad of human rights abuses such as family separations at the Mexico border. Most hypocritically, the most dangerous president in the history of the country received democratic support for record levels of military and immigration customs enforcement spending in the last budget. This, you know, highlights how Trump continues to be enabled by the Democrats, for whom platitudes and rhetoric rather than material policy is high priority. And, you know, I think one of the things has been, um, you know, for the Democrats um, as... um, as they keep they keep searching for this sort of perfect gotcha moment to expose Trump, hoping this will lead the foolish U.S. working class to realise their mistake in electing a man who is a threat to U.S. democracy. And this is sort of where a lot of the kind of impeachment proceedings sort of come from. Except it it hasn't because for most mostly working people didn't support him in the first place, and secondly because his strategy, this strategy was bound to fail. Um, Anyway, and of course, Leah writes here that such tactics are no substitute for the building of a mass movement and only fed illusions about politics being a game to be played strategically and with the best political analysis. And I think what um, Leah then writes here about, I think, one of the more optimistic sort of um, developments has been sort of the rise of um, Senator Bernie Sanders. 
um, for all this despair that Trump has caused since his election, campaign election, um, there's also potentially a reawakening of the US socialist movement. And on the back of um, Sanders' um, unsuccessful tilt for the Democratic president nomination in 2016, democratic socialism has become the new buzzwords. Um, the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America's membership has surged and many progressive and independent media outlets and organisations such as Our Revolution and Justice Democrats have sprung out. Um, and, of course, you had the election of um, the squad, which is, you know, a sort of a, a number of woman-coloured Democrat um, politicians, um, AOC, Alan Omar, Alina Presley and Rashida Tubb have sought to oppose Trump by putting... Um, um, by putting forward plans for universal health care, a Green New Deal, and ma- and major public housing sanction, rather than resorting to Congress school um, yeah, checks. Um, and in terms of like the Democratic primaries, um, a large field of several dozen candidates has slowly flatted, filtered down to four main candidate contenders: Sanders, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and Pete um, Buttigieg. Um, others such as Andrew Yang with his promise of a thousand dollar a month universal basic income and Beto O'Rourke, um, have added to the cops with the rights. However, come November, one of the above four will be above on the ballot with Trump. Um, the front line, um, these front runners, um, in terms of the Democratic primaries have laid out their respective platforms. Biden frequently stumbling in a loft manner in public events and official debates is the main sort of establishment. Um, candidate pretty much offers really nothing new from Obama and Clinton and relies solely on name recognition. Um, Warren and Sanders are, on the other hand, probably are seen as the two most progressive figures in the US Congress. Um, while Warren in some ways represents a, a, um, a, 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 a move away from the outright conservatives of several senior Democrats. She and Sanders emerged from differing political traditions. Um, as Zahid Jelana wrote in Jacobin, Sanders comes from a proud US history of socialism and labour movement holding consistent pro-worker anti-imperialist positions for decades. This is in contrast to Warren, a self-declared capitalist to her bones, who was a Republican well into her 30s. And I think only... As Leo writes, only Sanders is promising to forgive all 1.6 trillion of student debt and advocating a comprehensive implementation of a universal health Medicare for all framework that includes dental and eye health. And of course, this is what these kind of policies that sort of provoke the kind of corporate class hostility towards him. And, you know, alongside that, he also supports funding for public housing and making the big polluters pay. And one of the things, um, um, as the OR caucus's approach, the first of the US primaries polls show Sanders beating Trump head to head by the highest margin for any Democratic candidate. And, you know, while I think concluding here, while, while there's lots of critiques you can make of Sanders, um, the fact that I think Leah writes here, the fact that, um, that US voters even have a choice of voting for a candidate like Sanders does show that there's a potential um, um, development of a pop, a higher level of popularization of class politics and the building a mass movement is a powerful indicator of how the US political scene, um, is moving in the right direction. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, 
it's pretty exciting. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. But, yeah, it'd be great to see Bernie getting up in Iowa. Hmm. Well, I think if he um, wins Iowa, it, it's sort of... Well, one actually, just one interesting thing I just read on the way here. Um, but this sort of shows how the kind of establishment is kind of responding um, to the likes of Sanders. So the financial um, times wrote this article that... Um, Oh, you know, those, those ignorant rotors in, um, in Midwest Iowa have to vote between two populists, Donald Trump and, um, and, um, Bernie Sanders. And it sort of basically reflects this sort of disconnect that basically, um, ordinary working class people aren't, aren't voting for the self-appointed centrist sort of candidate um, that the intellectuals who write, um, the intellectual neoliberals that write um, for papers like the Financial Times want um, want them to vote for. Um, Interesting. So it's a variation of horseshoe theory. Yeah. So if you have uh, fascists mobilising in the streets and then you have people going to oppose them, then they for must be the same thing pretty much, just a left-wing version of the fascists. Yeah, because, because the real... The, real, um, the thing true centrists, as we know... We need someone, we need someone Since who, way back in World War Two, the real centrists, they just let fascists walk around. They don't... They don't confront that shit <laughs> well they'd, they're happy to, to debate it in the realm of ideas oh yeah 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 okay and and so now we see horseshoe theory in the electoral sphere as well whereas you've got the crazy right-wing populist trump and the crazy left-wing populist sanders and they are both the same a variation of a trend well mm. that's some that's some cutting insight there some high-grade stuff mm. Um, Alright, let's play a little announcement and have uh, a bit more news. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday Morning Breakfast Show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Yo, welcome back. It's, uh, it's, it's quarter to eight. It's Friday morning. You're on 3CR. This is Green Left Radio. Yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And um, just the latest news, I would like to talk about um, just a recent sort of partial victory that the Stop Adani campaign has um, managed to achieve. Um, and this is something that's kind of happened recently in the past few days. But now Grey Hole Hound Australia is the latest join in the growing list of companies refusing to work with Adani on its Carmichael coal mine in central Queensland after a targeted campaign by Stop Adani activists. And this is an article written by um, Margaret Gleeson. And the summary of this is basically Growhound told its workers in early um, January that it had been contracted to um, transport workers for Adani's rail project, which will link the mine to Abbott Point Port. With, um, when news of the, um, the, this contract went public, the response from the environmentalists were, was Im- immediate. 
Citizens of the Great Barrier Reef Foundation announced it was cutting ties with the company and Greyhound's um, CEO, Alex D. Wall, was forced to resign as foundation chair. Greyhound um, transports thousands of tourists to the Great Barrier Reef every year. Um, Greyhound released a statement following considered deliberation and in the best interests of our staff, customers and partners, Greyhound Australia has decided not to enter in a contractual agreement to service construction of the Carmichael Rail Network beyond our preliminary um, 31st of March 2020 commitment. Um, following the statement, um, Vasha Yajman, a spokesperson for School Shot for Clone, which had launched the campaign to boycott Greyhound, said, We thank Greyhound for not throwing young people under a bus by continuing to help Adani building their climate. Um, ah, I see what they did there. Colmo. <laughs> um, after a summer of bushfires and um, heatwaves, Yardman said, Greyhound's decision has given her hope. It shows that we can push companies to be part of the solution to climate change and consider the um, impact of their actions. And, yeah, so that's just sort of a, an example of a bit of a partial victory. I mean, the problem is they haven't completely stopped the mine yet, but it does show that sort of even just in a small way a kind of campaign can can have an impact. Mm. Yeah, no, it's good to, uh just the latest in a long run of many uh, pressure campaigns making people move away from Adani. So, solid work. Keep up keep up the good work. Stop Adani. Woo! What else is new? I've got an article in the latest Green Left about how Australia could have already transitioned to 100% renewable mm. energy. Um having been around the block a few times and being involved in the last big wave of climate campaigning oh, like 13 years ago, it kind of kicked off around 2007. We booted Howard and it was uh, it was some big uh, your rights at work rallies, but there was also the walks against warming, some big climate rallies, and that really, I think, uh, jolted people out of their complacency and... and um, yeah, it ultimately resulted in Howard getting voted out. Uh, and then a key task at that time was one of, one of the big arguments that Howard and, and other right-wing detractors had been making about renewables is, oh, well, sometimes the wind doesn't blow and sometimes the sun doesn't shine, so you need baseload power from coal or nuclear. And it's a bollocks argument. It's, uh, it's it's totally outdated, and but there was no uh, conclusive report showing that you could have 100% renewable energy in Australia. And so the good people at Beyond Zero Emissions set about writing up exactly that sort of report and demonstrating in great detail that we can very much shift to 100% renewable energy in Australia, and uh, they modelled the available wind and solar resources. They mapped out grid upgrades, and they mapped out what this, what an example of a 100% renewable energy system for Australia would look like. Uh, so I've got an article at Green Left, kind of commemorating that. That was that report came out 10 years ago, and it, and it showed a 10-year roadmap. So had that been acted on by the then Labor government. Uh, we could have been at 100% renewables already right now, and it just really shows, uh, once again, the disturbing and horrendous um, 
lemming-like march that capitalism has us headed on towards a cliff because coal profits are apparently more important than a livable planet and that's what superior economic management looks like. But, yeah, if you haven't read it, it is a little bit dated now. It's 10 years old, but, gee, it's still super relevant today. The Beyond Zero Emissions stationary energy report yeah maybe they should just re-release the report and say this is for 2030 <laughs> <laughs> it's like that it's really like that. it's really frustrating uh i have zero doubt in my mind it's it's purely a lack of political will and it's just it's just lunacy we've got the blueprint there uh we just need to invest We've got these tunnel projects and level crossing removal projects. It's just another big public works project. It's the NBN of renewables. And it's the NBN of renewables, and we shouldn't go fibre to the node. We need to go fibre all the way. We need to go 100% publicly owned renewable energy. It's, it's so eminently doable. One of the cool things about that report, too, there's been some debates lately in the climate movement about... There's this article in particular called Between the Devil and a Green New Deal, and it's looking at the impacts of rare earth mining and lithium. Like These are nasty, toxic things to dig up, and they go into certain types of wind turbines. They go into batteries that get used in, um, you know, standalone uh, off-the-grid home battery packs like the Tesla Powerwall, and this report from Beyond Zero preempted a lot of those debates. So the type of wind turbines they look at using, uh, they're called annular generating turbines, and they don't have big permanent rare earth magnets in them. Uh, that's important because if we're going to shift the world to 100% renewable energy, there's going to be a lot of wind turbines involved. And if they've all got rare earth magnets in them, that's going to create a lot more demand for this nasty rare earth mining. So using a type of turbine that doesn't uh, need those nasty magnets, that's, that's important. And this report, I guess, puts some of those considerations about the environmental footprint ahead of profit or ahead of just what's available right now. Um, and another example is it talks about um, concentrating solar thermal towers with heat storage instead of lithium batteries for energy storage. Uh, and again, it's about, you know, there's just been this coup in Bolivia against the Morales government, a, a factor in that. Some people probably over overhype this factor, but a factor is the, uh, the Yosuni... Um, lakes lithium deposit and western corporations wanting to get access to that lithium um it's it's nasty stuff i imagine going forward there's probably going to be some amount of lithium mining but the more dispatchable energy that we can do the more storage we can do using something like molten salts which is a lot more environmentally friendly the better because yeah lithium's nasty stuff anyway check that out the Beyond Zero Emissions Zero Carbon Australia 2020 Stationary Energy Report. It's just so relevant still. Hmm. All right, we'll just play another quick um, interview and maybe move on to another news article.
Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. Okay, so this is Shebop. And so is this. And this. Shebop, a program that explores feminist issues. Tune in Mondays, 10.30am, for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. Alright, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. Um, it is 7.55, well not 7.55, it's more 7.54am um, on a fine Friday morning. Um, now I guess the next article I want to talk about is just drawing from what's sort of happening in uh, on the US-Mexican kind of border. Um, and this is the article um, written by Tamara Pearson and the latest Green Left, um, that the US is using um, Mexico gutter Gutting Malaya? How do you pronounce it again? It's Guatemala. Sorry. Guatemala. Oh, Guatemala, yeah. Guatemala, um, to repress, um, caravans of migrants. And, um, Guatemalan police and United States, um, immigration and customs enforcement officials stationed in the border of Guatemala and Honduras, um, forced some members of a caravan of Honduran refugees and migrants to return home on January 16th. And another example was the, another Honduran caravan that reached the Mexican border with Guatemala, um, the following week was violently attacked by border officials. Um, one um, family refugees or for, um, minors were forced to flee to Guatemala as, and cried as they told EFE news agency they were fleeing Honduras because of threats from the Maria Savdoshucha gang, a transnational criminal organisation. 
U.S. agent Alex Suraz told the LA Times that um, ICE was in Guatemala to train Guatemalan authorities in immigration control, and U.S. Embassy spokesperson Chris Jones said Homeland Security personnel, ICE and Customs and Border Protection were in Guatemala, um, providing advisory and capacity-building support to deal with migrants. However, it seems that ICE, the ICE officials are the ones needing training as Central American countries have travel agreements that require um, Glutomalia um, to grant migrants passage. Um, the Central um, America for Free Mobility Agreement um, stipulates freedom of movement with it, without any impediment impediment, including border checks between El Salvador, uh, Guatemala, Honduras and Nicaragua. Um, the only exception is that minors um, should have identification, but that, this is to prevent trafficking of people, not migration. Nonetheless, mid last year, um, Guatemala's um, Minister for Internal Affairs, um, Enrich uh, Dengenhart, announced that his country was working with the US to reduce the number of migrants passing through um, Guatemala um, Malia, um, to break up caravans and subject families to t- um, DNA testing. And, of course, migrants and refugees have been travelling to the US through um, um, Guatemala and Mexico in groups of hundreds of thousands for their own security. On their own, they are runnable to extortion, kidnapping and rape. According to um, Mexican women's organisation Fondos um, Signores, 60% of of women migrants are are sexually assaulted on their journey through Mexico. But some government officials and media have criminalised the caravans with Dengelhans stating, for us, caravans are a criminal way of moving or trafficking or smuggling people through our territory. Um, Degenhardt, um, speaking mid last year, also admitted that the US officials in um, Guatemala were there to um, confront those caravans. A US official speaking off the record said US officials would be in Guatemala to stop migrants journeying, journeying through Mexico to the US. And meanwhile, before the caravans of Ardid Honduras, um, Mexican officials had also announced that refugees and migrants would not be allowed to continue to the US, but would be granted visas if they agreed to stay in Mexico. This position is a change to Mexican President um, Andres Manuel Lopez Amorador's initial position of offering residential visas for humanitarian reasons to all Central American migrants in the caravan that crossed into Mexico um, last year. As he began his presidential turn, um, Obrador um, promised that Mexico would always protect the human rights of migrants and would not deport anyone seeking asylum. In May last year, US President Donald Trump threatened Mexico with an escalating series of tariffs unless the country put a stop to migrants passing through there to get to the US. And, of course... Early last year, the U.S. government also cut aid to Central America after Trump um, said the region was not doing enough um, to stop the caravans. And of course, on the on the one thing that happened was on the Mexican um, Guatemalan border, officials fired tear gas at members of a caravan as they tried to cross the um, Suchigate River on January 20. Um, video footage shows the Mexican National Guard throwing objects at un, un, um, armed migrants. 
And Sandra's um, Rasquiz Diaz, a Mexican activist um, at the Casa Tushan Migrant Refuge in Mexico City, told Green Left that preserving the trade relationship between Mexico and the U.S. comes at a cost that affects all of us. The Mexican state is reproducing the discriminatory and racist discourse that comes from the U.S. and is aimed at Mexico and is using this discourse to prevent migrants from exercising their human rights. Hmm. Yes, and so continues a long history of right-wing U.S. interference in Guatemalan domestic affairs, going right back to the 1954 coup against the then uh, left-wing Guatemalan president, uh, Jacobo Arbenz. Hmm. Well, how disgusting. Hmm. All right, we'll play a quick announcement and move on to the activist calendar. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is time for the activist calendar. And so starting um, every Friday until March the 6th, there'll be a protest, I think, organised by Extinction Rebellion, um, Tell the Truth News Corp, um, which will be at 1pm at the HYT building, 40 City Street Road in South Bank. On Friday, January the 31st, tonight, there'll be a Swarm the City for Climate Justice happening at 5pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then from Saturday, February the 1st to Saturday, February the 29th, there'll be the National Sustainable Living Festival. Um, I'll, search, I'll search up Sustainable Living Festival Melbourne to get um, an idea of what um, is on the agenda. And then starting this Sunday to Thursday, the February the 6th, there'll be the Canberra People's Climate Assembly, um, all the way in Canberra. And on um, Sunday, February the 2nd, will be the annual Midsummer Pride March happening at 11am at Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. And then on Tuesday... Um, the 4th of February, there'll be a protest, Tamil Oppression Day. Stand with the Tamil people in their struggle against the military occupation of their homeland in Sri Lanka um, at 5.30pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then there'll be a film screening, um, Sustainable um, Cities, um, in the Loop Project space, um, 23 Myers Place in the city. And then Saturday, February the 8th to Sunday, February the 9th, there'll be a weekend of action, Defend the Grass Drilling Moratorium. And then on Sunday, um, the February the 9th, there'll be um, a rally, No Right to Discriminate, um, opposed to religious discrimination bills, and they'll be happening at 1pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then on Wednesday, um, January, um, February the 12th, um, there'll be a public meeting, 
corporate power in Australia due to the one um, due to the one percent rule. Lindy Edwards would talk about her new book investigating whether or and how the big corporations rule in Australia, and that'll be happening at seven pm at the New International Bookshop on February twelfth. Um, Friday, um, the fourteenth of February to Saturday. Did you mention the Zine Fair? No, it wasn't on the list. Do you want to mention it? Okay, yeah. So um, the Sticky Institute presents Festival of the Photocopier Zine Fair 2020. Uh, it's happening next weekend, Feb 8 and 9, at the Meat Market. Uh, does that say 8? Blackwood Street. 8 Blackwood Street, North Melbourne. And it's from uh, 12 noon till 5 p.m., on Saturday and Sunday, so that's good. You can, you can go out, you can see some live music, you can sleep in, and then you can rock up around noonish to the Zine Fair. Uh, sorry, please. Uh, oh yeah, well thanks for that. Well, we forgot to include it in this um, printout. Um, so from Friday the 14th of February to Saturday the 15th of February, um, there'll be the National Climate Emergency Summit at the Melbourne Town Hall. Um, you can search National Climate Emergency Summit in, on Facebook and Google um, to get an idea of the website for the agenda. And then on Saturday, February the 22nd, there'll be the Climate Crisis National Day of Action at 2pm at the State Library in 328 Swanson Street in the city. Um, Saturday, February the 29th, um, from Manus to Amatra, let them out, let them stay. Refugees and asylum seekers brought from Manus for medical treatment have been locked up at the Mantra Hotel in Preston, in some cases for almost a year. Others are behind the fences at the Broadmeadows Detention Centre, 2pm at the Mantra Hotel, 215 Bell Street in Preston. Alright. Oh, and did you mention, uh, the... 3CR International Women's Day Collective? No, I haven't yet. Okay, so I've just noticed that in uh, in the studio here. Oh, sorry, I'm just getting a cramp in my leg. I was building a deck all day yesterday and my muscles are a bit wrecked. All right, um, 3CR's International Women's Day Collective 2020 is meeting this Sunday, Feb 2nd, at 3pm here at 3CR Studios on Smith Street. Uh, if you can't make it but wanted to have some input, call 9419 um or email your input. So, yeah, that's going on there. And International Women's Day this year is coming up on March 8th, which is uh, this year falls on a Sunday. Oh, oh yeah. So what we play, quick announcements, and yes. we have... Three to four minutes until our second and last interview. هل تعلم بمن تتصل إذا حدثت لك إصابة في العمل؟ أضمن هيئة ويكسيد فيكتوريا سلامة العمال في جميع أنحاء ولاية فيكتوريا عن طريق مساعدتكم في معرفة حقوقكم وواجباتكم المتعلقة بالإصابات في مكان العمل. لقد أعدت هيئة ويكسيد فيكتوريا ثلاثة مشاهد متحركة وهناك صفحة حقائق متاحة. عبر الانترنت وذلك لمساعدتكم في فهم ماهيتها والامور التي تستطيع القيام بها من اجلكم راجعوا الموقع www.worksafeinfo.com.au للحصول على معلومات بلغتكم Help 3CR support the rights of indigenous Australians 
They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others... recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Hi. Um, so on the line um, we have Khalid um, Ganam, um, who is a member of Socialist Alliance and a long-time um, activist for Palestine. Um, so, yeah, good morning, Khalid. Good morning. All right. Um, so I guess the first question um, I think we want to talk about is um, what's sort of been in the news um, lately has been um, this recent sort of deal. Uh, in fact, I remember this deal has sort of been mentioned, was mentioned last year, kind of Trump's deal of the century. Um, but, of course, it's gotten more specific details um, in sort of the past week. And what can you tell us about this um, new sort of Trump deal in terms of and what does it mean for Palestine? Well, uh, first of all, it is not a deal. It is uh, something from uh, from the American and Israeli to to decide in behalf of the Palestinian. It's, it is a new copy of the Belfort Declaration where uh, the imperialism uh, want to force Palestinians to uh, be outside their land. So it is not a deal. This is the first thing. So no one accepted from the Palestinian people, and they didn't, they didn't talk with any Palestinian about it, and they don't want to do any peace process to negotiate what is the future between the Palestinian and Jews in, in, the, uh, in Palestine. They want just to make it what is the benefit of Israeli and America. And what is sort of the? Can you tell us a bit about the specifics of what of what what the U.S. is actually trying to impose on um, Palestine? Well, uh, the, uh, they want to to make a decision without any peace process. They want to to take off uh, around forty uh, percent of West Bank, and uh, they want to. Uh, take Jerusalem city and uh, they want to uh, take all the uh, weapon with Hamas and to make it uh, like unarmed uh, area and uh, they are they don't want any uh, refugee to come back to Palestine and uh, all the settlements in West Bank and Jerusalem it will be part of Israel and no border control for the Palestinian will be inside Israel as little contents, like it's, we don't have any uh, independence. Hmm. And uh, more, more, uh, one more thing is we cannot have any international economic deal uh, without Israel permission. And they will give us extra area, not from Israel, no. We will, we will occupy some area from the Bedouin and, and uh, Egypt area. They will give it to us. But all these things will not happen because we know like it is all the political party in Palestine, Fatah and Hamas, they refuse this thing. Hmm. And what, what is sort of like, I guess, I mean, 
I'm interested in kind of hearing what is sort of the motivation um, from the US in terms of what they are hoping to get out of this in terms of their own foreign relations with Israel. Okay, now uh, it is more about the region, uh, the region as, uh, as big things like in the Middle East after after like finishing the uh, ISIS propaganda, they want to make big align with the Gulf area and Israel and Egypt. But uh, officially, n- nothing is mentioned like there is any uh, uh, any change for the uh, governments in Egypt or Gulf area. They are not supporting Palestine or they are with this uh, uh, with this deal uh, because Israel look to the peace as it is the security of Israel. It's not peace like how people can live together. And the Arab world, they don't want the security of Israel. They want to live in harmony in the region, and Israel is not looking for this point. And what has... um, You mentioned um, some of the responses of um, the Palestinian kind of political parties to this sort of deal, what has been kind of the response of the Palestinian community in terms of um, ongoing resistance against um, the Israeli occupation of Palestine? Well, first of all, Israel and America look for the uh, current occupation as what happened in year 2000 when the Israel army occupied the area A, which is the city like Ramallah, Nablus and this city, and they said we will go out of this, but we want them to go out all of all West Bank, not just the area A. This is the word current occupation. You hear it a lot in, in uh, American media, which is not like something we accept. And uh, we will have like uh, a seminar talking in Lakemba Monday night. It will be in Arabic, and we are trying to prepare for uh, a rally, uh, a rally in, uh, like in, in Sydney to protest against the, this deal. Hmm. And um, what are there kind of any more kind of other comments you would like to make um, about these sort of recent developments in Palestine? For sure, like I want to, to, to mention that they, they are looking for these things as like Israel is a Jewish state and they don't want to talk about the Palestinians. There is around one million Palestinians live in Israel. They, they want them to be like unknown without any right living in, uh, in inside Israel, you, we will we will add for them around 400,000 Palestinians live in Jerusalem area. They will be like a second class uh, citizen in Israel. No one talk about them, and they don't mention what will happen for six million Palestinians who are refugee outside Palestine and their right of return. What will happen for them? We need to take action, big action for this thing. Hmm. Right, Zane, do you have a question you'd like to ask? No, thank you very much. Thank o- you for... Oh, oh, no. oh, Khaled, no. uh, before you go, I'm just interested... Uh, uh, my understanding is that this sort of... If if Palestine signed onto this do- um, deal, it would just sign over huge amounts of land that has been gradually taken by Israel over the last sort of 60 years since since Al-Nakba, it, it would kind of sign it over. It would set it in concrete. This now officially belongs to Israel. Can you comment on the just the scale of that, like the amount of Palestinian land, no, even even 
the the whole place, Israel, Palestine, it all used to be Palestine. But even looking at the 1948 borders, how much of yep. that land has been gradually illegally occupied by uh, Israel? Well, if you if you want to talk about occupied, it is all occupied. Israel mm. army everywhere. Mm. But if you want to talk about the settlement area, uh, I, I like to call it the colonizing area where the settlers live, it is 40% of West Bank and it is 60% of Jerusalem area. And, uh, and this is not something legally they, they buy. They, they want to say, like, if we buy something, it will belong to us. But we know that Israel, like, like they are occupied, occupying, the Palestine, occupying this area and they need to go out of it. So mm. we cannot say, like, this is something we negotiate for it and we give it for them. No one will say this thing. Hmm. Yeah. So, but like, if we can talk about it in, in specific, uh, like for, for uh, Oslo Accord, it took two years to, finish, to, to make, to build this, to build this accord. But now, Americans, they don't want any visa process. They want to force Palestinians to accept something because they they look to the Palestinians as they are weak and they can accept it. But on the other side, Netanyahu, he's not elected. And his, gov his government is, like, corrupted. And they have the third round of election next month. And so far, like everyone saying, he's not doing good for the Israeli people. And so I, I don't think there is anyone ready in Israel to make any negotiation with Palestinians now. Because they are busy with the election. So without peace process, without sitting in the table and negotiate everything, we cannot have any any deal. So that I'm saying this this deal is something like a new a new bill for declaration. It is from from power like imperialism, like American, give it for Jews, like and this is unfair for the Palestinian people and the Arab world. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And Donald Trump is just a massive fraud <laughs> once again saying he's going to well, negotiate well, some. Well, when you talk about it, you can see what, what's going on with what, what, is, what, is, what he's doing with, with the Jordanian border, how many times Israel attacked Syria and Iraq last year. It was more than 1,000 times Israel attacked uh, like area in, in Syria and Iraq. You can see the area in Egypt, how many, how, how many people is now in jail in Egypt and, uh, because of, of Israel saying they need security. Looking to the beast, it is just security. It is very bad because it's something like, yeah, you are dealing with army. We need to deal people to people. If we are not dealing people to people, it will be very hard to deal. Israel always do, Look for us as we are high class and we are low class. This is, cannot be happen to solve any problem. And, and, and what's going on recently about finding the natural gas and, and East, uh, East uh, Mediterranean Sea. And they want to, to steal the Palestinian, the Palestinian natural resources where everyone saying this will give Palestine, especially Gaza, a lot of money to, to rebuild itself. They want to steal this. 
So I, 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 they, don't, they, they don't want to deal with any Arab world, even something like Sisi in Egypt. They don't want to deal with them about the future of the Israel economics. They want to deal with Cyprus and Greece, and they, I, I, they want to steal the natural gas from Lebanon border and Egypt and also Palestinian and Jordan. They, they don't want to, de- to be part of our, our area. They are just imperialism. They want to steal our resources and our land and try to slave our people. So that we, we cannot accept anything from this. Um, and Khaled, you're talking about um, increasing Israeli incursions into Jordan and Syria. Do you think that uh, Palestine is the thin end of the wedge, as it were, and that Israel has longer-term plans to, to kind of continue expanding uh, further and further, not just trying to um, conquer more of Palestine, but also expand into other parts of, of the area? For sure, for sure. Hmm. They, are, they are controlling the area, like in southern Lebanon, it's very dangerous to, to have any... Any, uh, any, uh, any economic activities because Israel, Israel military force is all around there. And in Jordan, what they call it, the Valley of Jordan, it's very, uh, very unsafe. And, and there is half of Sina, uh, in, in, uh, in Egypt. It's empty because Israel is security. And Israel trying to, to, to say, we will help the Arab people fighting Iran. And this is untrue. This is untrue because all the Arab region know Israel is an uh, is enemy of the Arab world because no, they are not dealing, even with Saudi Arabia or Gulf area, they are not dealing as a friend. They are part of our enemy. And I cannot see in the future anything more than united between Palestinians. Last Tuesday morning, uh, uh, Haniyeh, the, the leader of Hamas, called uh, uh, President uh, Mahmoud Abbas, and told, tell him we need to be united more. And Mahmoud Abbas said, we are supporting Gaza and supporting Hamas, and we need to be united against this, this like massive problem we are facing from the American imperialism and Zionist movement in America. And we know that, like, talking about Netanyahu and what he's doing, he wants to make, yeah, and make deal with Fatah so Hamas will be angry from Fatah or make deal with Hamas so Fatah will be angry from Hamas. This deal to divide the Palestinian leadership, it will not work because Palestinians are aware what is the enemy. The enemy is Israel. And when they want to make peace, they want to, to give us some trust. They want good future for the Palestinians, good future for our people. And most of things, Jerusalem must be part of, uh, of Palestine and it is our like historical capital and all the refugees must return to Palestine. We will not accept anything without the return of refugees. Mm. Refugee is the main issue for Palestine. We cannot accept that there is around 10 million Jews all around the world. They have the right to go back to Israel while the Palestinian refugee who is living in uh, around around uh, historical Palestine, in the camp, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan, they are not allowed even to visit Palestine. Hmm. Yeah, it's a complete double standard. Yeah, hmm. it is. Hmm. 
Hi, we might um, conclude this if we, uh, interview, Khalid. Um, do you have any like sort of final comments you'd like to make? Um, um, how, is how any can, upcoming protests yeah, coming how up? Can, how can people uh, get involved and, and support? Uh, well, uh, 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 we will try as Socialist Alliance to be, to be the one who will do the rally for this protest. I talked with the uh, Fatah leader, Karanouh, at morning, and I asked him if there is anything to protest uh, against this deal. And he said, if you, if you start with it, we will be with you. Because uh, they are not organizing anything yet, and they are waiting the left parties to organize something from the socialist movement. So we, we need to do it. They said, we, you need, we need to support the Palestinian community more than Palestinian community supporting themselves. They need to support, they need to, we need to do the rally. Hmm. We need to announce the rally and then they will come with us. Hmm. All right. Well, yeah. yeah. Everyone keep your eye out for, uh, yeah, Palestine solidarity rallies in the coming period as, uh, people push back against this. Uh, grubby yeah, for and sure. disgusting for sure. deal. Oh, we will try to do it next week. Within next week, we try to do it. Word. All right. Well, yes. um, thanks heaps for speaking with us this morning, Khaled. Thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Um, yes, uh, Khaled Gaman, uh, Ganam, the, a uh, Palestinian community activist uh, based in Sydney, is that right? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we can. Alrighty. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Hi, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. There's only like a few minutes probably left, but I kind of like to want to um, just read from this very short article from Green in latest Green Left, and it's just a setting sort of the record straight on why Australia's 1.3% emissions matter. And Alex um, writes here that um, Scott Morrison likes to always kind of say that um, Australia only produces 1.3% of glo- global greenhouse emissions, um, which he often says to bolster his climate denialist position that um, that Scott um, that his government does not need to take a lead on cutting carbon emissions. And for five reasons, Alex argues that this position is fundamentally wrong for a num, um, that is, there is already too much carbon in the, um, in the, um, in the atmosphere. Globally, we have to um, stop all emissions as soon as possible. Every one per um, percent matters, including Australia's. We should begin rapidly, um, reducing emissions to zero. Australia's per capita emissions are the highest in the developed world with 0.3% of the world's population. Reducing total emissions to 0.3% instead of 1.3% would be catching up to the average. Of course, the third one is Australia is a wealthy country and therefore has the means to take faster action to reduce emissions. And of course, 
one of the other things is that within Australia, there's a lot of sun and um, wind technology, which is the capacity to be able to move um, faster than average to 100% renewable. And I guess another problem with the 1.3% um, figure that Scott Morrison likes to tout is it doesn't necessarily account for the fact that we were one of the largest exporters of coal in the world. That's right. And I think that's really... That's above all else. That would be the massive impact of Australia going from being a climate villain to a climate hero. Is we're a huge polluter. We sabotage international agreements, and if we were to change course, that would have a huge impact. It would send a big message globally. All right, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, stick around for Beyond Zero Emissions. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now?